Today is part two of a two-part um, sermon from Philippians three seventeen to 21. The passage itself is a study in contrast, <clears throat> and each respective sermon is intended to examine each side of that contrast. So part one was last week. It was uh, dark, angry, maybe borderline hopeless. In fact, as Angie pointed out to me, um, near the beginning of the sermon, I highlighted how Paul weeps over the fate of those who are enemies of the cross and how so many pastors don't weep, but rather gleefully rage against those who've chosen the wrong path. And then I, the pastor, went ahead and raged somewhat gleefully against the enemies of the cross. So that's just some light hypocrisy that I need to apologize for. <clears throat> um, but my anger then and, and ever isn't against the world. I'm not angry about the world. Jesus was never angry at the world either. He wasn't angry at sinners. It's not against, my anger isn't directed against those who are trapped in the systems of consumption and destruction and individualism and privilege that are so woven intrinsically into our our fallen and broken Western world. So my beef isn't against average Joe Pagan who has nothing to do with Jesus. That's that's not who the enemies of the cross are that Paul's talking about in Philippians 3. Instead, as we looked at last week, the enemies of the cross are those who claim to follow Jesus but instead dishonor him with their lives. Those who normalize a sort of spiritual consumption where coming to church is all about getting and getting and getting. Those who excuse destructive tendencies with weak theology and destructive tendencies like racism or how we destroy the earth around us or how we don't care about our global neighbor. Those who worship worldly power instead of the power who created the world. Those who misrepresent the kingdom of God by excluding certain people groups from the kingdom. Those are who Paul is talking about. Those are the types of people who are enemies of the cross. In other words, people like me. I, I tend to behave as an enemy of the cross, and, and you do too. We, we all do it. It's hard to break from the corruption of the world around us. It's hard to loose ourselves from the world's grip. And as I tried to demonstrate last week, when the church fails to break from the world, it's our neighbors who suffer, particularly our neighbors who are the least of these, as Jesus uh, would say, as Jesus showed special compassion for. It's those who can't defend themselves that suffer when we worry only about ourselves. Um, when the least of these suffer, that means the gospel of Christ suffers. So the stakes are high. We, as ambassadors of our king, can't afford to live like we're in some cosmic hot dog eating contest, as we talked about last week, stuffing our gullets full of more and more pointless garbage and neglecting to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. The stakes are too high for us to fall into that trap. The human cost of Western society's obsession with more and better and self is staggering. We talked about global warming, sweatshops, bigotry, social isolation, and churches filled to the brim with unsacrificial, unsubmissive, unwilling, and unloving servants. If you live like this, if you live like a true enemy of the cross of Christ, then your destiny is, anybody remember? Destruction. Your God is your stomach. It's your unnourished consumerism. And your glory will be revealed in the end as nothing but bitter, empty, filthy shame. So that's contrast one. I ended last week's sermon with a slightly melodramatic, but I still think really crucially important sensibility that when I think of myself, it seems like I'm destined to destroy and destined to consume and destined for shame. What a woeful, helpless sinner am I. 
I am little more than an enemy of the cross of Christ. Where can I turn to be made new? Who can help me in my wretchedness? Paul says very similar things in his writings as well. He calls himself the greatest of all sinners. When I look at my life and how much I'm enslaved to the world around me, I wonder where can I turn to be made new? Who can help me in my wretchedness? And since you're here in a church, you probably already know the easy answers to this. And they're, they're easy answers, but they're the real answers. Who can help you? Well, there's only one person who can help you. So you may know the answer, but we're still going to examine it anyway. Let's read what it says in our passage. This is uh, 3, actually 18 to 21. It says, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. The one who has power over everything has the power to transform you into a new creature. That's the hope that rises out of last week's hopelessness. That The contrast between verses 19 and 20 is this, that enemies of the cross set their minds on earthly things, but followers of Jesus have a higher view. We don't belong to, these, to this earth, the powers of this earth. We need not bow to the self-serving corrupt empire around us. Our passport is issued by a higher authority and is for a greater place. We do not belong to the God of mammon, which in scripture is the God of wealth and, and profit, nor do we belong to the empire of consumption. Rather, we are citizens of heaven. That's where our citizenship belongs. As citizens of heaven, our glory need not be our shame, our God need not be our empty consumption, and our destiny need not be our destruction. We have a greater glory, we have a greater destiny, and we have a greater God. Well, we have those things, We have our destiny now. We have our God now. We have our uh, glory now. We're already living in it, but we don't have them yet, at least not fully. Just listen to the language of our passage. It says, we eagerly await a Savior. Jesus has already come. He's already conquered. He's already victorious. He's already risen, glorified, and still we wait for him eagerly. It says, he will transform our lowly bodies. They will be like his glorious body. It's not something that we have yet. It's it's something to come. Ours is an already but not yet existence. It's the tension between who we are now and who we will become, who we have been, who we are now, and who we will become. We are citizens of heaven right now, and we have a greater destiny and a greater God and a greater glory right now, but we don't have it in its fulfillment right now. Not yet. We remain sojourners and pilgrims. And that's what we'll focus on this morning. No more hot dogs. No more complaining over red grapes, as we did last week, as I did last week. No more doom and gloom about the very real and very significant issues that the church needs to pull its head out of the sand about. Instead, today, we're going to tell a few stories. There's stories from Scripture, and they're diverse and wide-sweeping, wide-overarching stories that may not seem like they're related at first, but each of these stories together forms a mosaic. And when you take a step back and view the mosaic from a higher perspective, from a heavenly perspective, we see power and beauty in the portrait that it it creates. In these stories, I think we will find our destiny, we'll find our God, we'll find our glory. 
in these stories, I hope we find ourselves and we find our home. By the way, before I continue, I want to acknowledge that I'm deeply indebted for a lot of these thoughts. I'm deeply indebted to a friend of mine named Doug Seward uh, for the content of this sermon. Like me, Doug is a um, rural pastor uh, who also works full-time in the education system. He's an English teacher. I've heard him speak at Bethel Bible Camp lots of times. He was the speaker last week when I was there. I really love hearing Doug speak. He sees things like I do, but from a more artful perspective, a really beautiful perspective. Um, and the content of his speaking last week, he, he used some videos from an excellent website called The Bible Project, which I will link when I post the sermon on our Facebook page. I'll link The Bible Project to it because they were great videos, uh, really great. And the content of his, his um, sermons really influenced a lot of my thinking for today. Uh, I loved what he had to say. So lots of my sermon is influenced by what I learned and relearned from Doug. So thank you, Doug. He spoke about living as an exile. And that's what we're going to focus on today. So let's tell some stories. There was once a group of people with no home. Not that they never had a home. Um, it's just that their home was currently occupied by people other than themselves. This would be a problem for anyone. Imagine, if you will, a, a band of raiders from Mournville or Thorhild or <gasps> Barhead. Imagine if a bunch of raiders from Barhead swooped in and booted you out of your home. They claimed it for themselves. They put their feet up on your furniture. They uprooted your prized petunias. They gorged themselves on the food from your freezer. And worst of all, they tear down your church and replace it with their own place of worship to their very to their many violent and chaotic gods. And all the while, you are helpless to do anything except watch from the shadows. They have complete control and authority. In an instant, your home and your entire way of life is gone. You are in the same place you always were, but now you are the outsiders. You are the unwanted. You are the exiles. But not everything is lost. You still have each other. You still have your faith, though your faith is far less comfortable than it was when you were in control. Sometimes that's a good thing. But there's one other thing that remains, though everything else has been ripped away from you. You and your people, exiles among the occupying Barhedians, still have your stories. You have your history, your shared experiences that indicate your identity as a people. For centuries, your people have told these stories to one another, passing them on from gener generation to generation in your grand places of worship, like this majestic cathedral you see today. Ugh as well as on the knees of parents to their children. These stories are passed on from generation to generation. Although recent events compel you to actually write these stories down, record them for posterity's sake, they're the same stories your people have been telling to one another as long as your people have been a people. These have been your stories. And these stories are messy. They're complex and ugly. They're engaging and beautiful. They're filled with bloodshed and sacrifice. They're filled with poetry and songs. They're filled with foolishness and wisdom. But most of all, amidst these messy stories, you have a portrait of who you are, as well as whose you are. You are more than outcasts and slaves to the vile empire, Barhead, who stole your homes. Your stories teach you that you are a chosen people, a holy people. You are a light to the world and the hope of all nations, Never mind who the pagan Barhedians worship, you know the one true God because he has made it his will to make himself known to you. He calls you his children. He calls you his beloved. He calls you his own. And he calls you to serve only him, 
even in the depths of your exiled despair. Because you know what? Your recent exile at the hands of ravaging hordes from the West are nothing new. As you and the remnant of your fellow outcasts band together and retell the ancient stories, you're reminded that you've always been exiles. That's what these stories tell you. Your existence is one of exile. You've always been pilgrims and wanderers and sojourners. You've always searched for home even when you thought you were home. You've always scanned the horizon for destiny and glory, even when your God was nearest to you. So you've always been exiles. This was always how your God designed it. Now, if you are astute, and I know that you all are, then you've probably picked up on the fact that the exiles in Clyde share an identity with a very real historical people group. Who would that be? Lorraine, I saw you melt something. Care to share? The Israelites, that's exactly right. The identity that I just shared is the identity that Israel finds themselves in the centuries before Jesus arrived. Due to failure of leadership, due to lack of faith, God turned his firstborn son, Israel, over to the hands of a rotating cast of empirical rulers. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. The Jewish people were home, but it was not their home. The land was the same land they had been promised to them by God himself, and yet they were not in control. It was no longer theirs. Babylon was in control. Babylon had torn down the holy temple and crushed the line of kings and enslaved the Israelites. So now they were exiled. They were taken away to Babylon. They were allowed to return. But even when they returned, they were still exiles. It was no longer their land. But it was at this time, the time of exile and the time of prophecy, that Israel began recording their history in written form for the first time. For millennia, what we now call the Old Testament had been shared verbally, as was all truth in a predominantly oral society in the ancient Middle East. But in telling the stories as exiles, the theme of exile really came alive in those messy stories of God's dealing with humanity. Think back to the very beginning. God creates humanity with a special blessing. We alone, in all of creation, bear his image. No idol could portray portray the one true God, so he rejects idols of any kind and instead chooses to stamp his image on the hearts and souls of humankind. But from the very beginning, humankind was corruptible. At the first opportunity, we succumbed to selfish desires, succumbed to disobedience, and succumbed to pride. We replaced God with ourselves. We pursued what we wanted rather than what he wanted. Notice also that it happened with the fruit. Their God was their stomach indeed. And so as a consequence for breaking covenant with our creator, humanity was exiled from its intended home. Exiled real good, too. God put in front of the the entrance to the garden, he put a a cherubim, a mighty, fierce angel, not some chubby little bow and arrow angel. That's not what a cherubim is. A mighty, fearful angel with a flaming sword to, to ensure that humanity wouldn't get back to the garden. Return to our beautiful state of innocence was impossible. And humankind took on the mantle of outcasts, hoping for the day of homecoming when we could once again dwell in the powerful presence of our glorious God. So right from the beginning of scripture, humanity is a bunch of exiles. And it's our fault. The virus of sin took root. It manifested itself in countless ways, leading up to the issues of consumption and dehumanization we discussed last week on a global scale. To be human was to be destined for destruction, as the sin of the world saturated our minds and seeped into our souls. How could the Creator love such vandalized creatures? 
How could he still love us as deformed and mutilated from what we were intended to be? How could he still love us? And yet he did love his creatures. He still does. He refused to abandon them to the brokenness that they had created. Though they were exiled, they were his exiles. They were his children, and they needed directions back home. So he began to guide them back. First, he did this through a very unlikely old man named Abram. God established a covenantal relationship with Abram, who he renamed Abraham. These promises included numerous offspring, a lineage of kings, but I want to focus on one particular promise from Genesis 17.8. It says, The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as foreigners, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Through Abraham, God now had a people, and those people now had a home, a promised land. Abraham himself was a foreigner and an outcast, exactly the type of person God would later repeatedly command his people to show compassion on. I looked it up twice in the three chapters of Exodus after the Ten Commandments are given. Twice God says, be compassionate to foreigners because you yourself were foreigners in the land of Egypt. And then later in Deuteronomy, he echoes it again and again. There's so many laws that have to do with showing kindness and compassion to foreigners because God's people are foreigners. They are aliens. They are outcasts. Abraham himself was a foreigner and an outcast in the land that would eventually be his and his descendants. But through his faith, because of Abraham's faith, his descendants have a home to look forward to in Canaan, the promised land. Except, whoops, first there was Egypt the first occupying empire over God's people. Just three generations after Abraham, God's people would be sidetracked from the promised land and end up under the hand of Pharaoh. This went okay at first, thanks to Joseph's faithful devotion to God and his unwillingness to cave to the ugliness and oppression around him. But several hundred years later, God's people were feeling the brutal weight of Egypt's oppression. They were feeling the weight of empire. Their first taste of empire was of mud and blood, and sweat and tears, and it eventually cost them their infant sons. But right there, in the courts of Pharaoh, God would raise up a deliverer. But of course, it wasn't until he was first forced to flee from Egypt that Moses could return with the strength of Yahweh. In other words, God didn't empower Moses to save the Hebrews from within the king's palace. Instead, Moses had to be humbled from Prince of Egypt to Midianite Shepherd, before God would make him an instrument of deliverance. Moses had to experience exile before he could lead his people out of the world's mightiest empire and back towards the glorious destiny of the Promised Land. Moses was an exile. He started in power and privilege, but it wasn't until he was exiled to Midian that God filled him, God revealed himself to Moses, and used Moses as the one who would save the people. First had to be exile. I should add that before that stubborn and faithless first generation of freed Israelites could see the promised land, they had to wander in the desert for how long? 40 years. 40 years of continued exile because they refused to trust in the God who had just delivered them. So they were exiled again. Are you sensing a pattern? Eventually the Israelites arrive home in the land of milk and honey that had been promised to them. They were no longer outcasts or exiles They were instead settlers and conquerors. But being at home in the promised land that that had been promised to them, being home in the promised land didn't make them prone to obedience or submission to the God who had made them his people. Quite the opposite. 
Once settled in the promised land, they would routinely ignore God. They would get content and privileged and entitled. They would fall prey to the worldly myths of self-sufficiency and social status. They would bow to other idols, whether it was idols carved in wood and stone, which isn't really an issue for us today, or whether it's idols carved into their minds and hearts, idols like consumption and greed and selfish desires, which are definitely still a problem for us today. In short, the people of God would turn from their God and make themselves enemies of their God, the same issue we read about last week in Philippians 3. And how would God snap them out of their stupor of destruction and vanity? How would he do it during the time of the judges? What would he do to snap them out of their disobedience? Who would he send? No, not prophets. Good guess, though. Prophets will come later. We'll talk about the prophets. He would send empires. Israel would fall into disobedience. They would give up on God, and God would send empires to control them and crush them and oppress them. Empires like the Philistines or the Midianites or the Moabites, or any other ite you could think of, all of them took a turn crushing God's people, and that was God's will. Why? Because only under the suffering and oppression of empire would the people once again cry out to their God. Only when they were exiles in their own country were they able to remember their identity of children of the divine parent, and only in their exile would they once again place their trust in him. It's this gruesome cycle of disobedience, destruction, despair, and then in their despair, finally turn back to God, and then deliverance at the time of the Judges illustrated. The whole book of Judges is this whole cycle. Israel would disobey. God would send an empire to crush them. They would they would be destroyed. They'd be despondent. They'd turn out to God. They'd cry out in despair. They would finally learn to trust God, and God would deliver them through a judge. But again, you see them being exiles in their own homes. Next came the time of the kings. God did not want his people to have kings. He knew that they would put their faith in the crown rather than the creator. God didn't want his people to have a temple. He knew that they would worship the building itself and forget that God desired a tabernacle, which was just a humble tent where he would travel around in the midst of his people, the presence of God in the middle of his people. But the Israelites insisted, and they got their kings, and they got their temples, and they got their political strength and their military conquests and their storehouses of gold. And you know what happened? They got everything they ever wanted. They got power. They got wealth. They got privilege. They got everything they had longed for. And it wasn't long before those former slaves to the Egyptian empire became the evil empire themselves. They became the privileged ones. They became the powerful ones. They became the prestigious ones. And with their privilege and power and prestige and political might, they gained the whole world. We just read Matthew 16. But they forfeited something in the meantime their faith, their covenant, and as Jesus says in Matthew 16, their souls. They got everything they wanted, and it doomed them. Israel's time as a major empire was a time of absolute failure. Almost absolute. There were small pockets of victory and and goodness. But as you read the two Samuels and the two Kings and the two Chronicles, which tell the stories of the kings, you see Israel's faith eroding, and you see their light fading. Eventually, they would break apart. The northern kingdom, Israel, was never good. After Solomon, they broke apart. The north, never good. The south, occasionally good. So things started out well under David. They reached their worldly height of power and prestige under Solomon and then collapsed under Solomon. 
They perk up from time to time with some good kings like Josiah and Hezekiah who bring in reform, uh, religious reform. But mostly Israel's time as an established world empire was a cesspool of betrayal towards their true king, Yahweh. It's hard to blame God when he finally destroys the kingdoms of Israel and Judah and hands them over to their empirical oppressors. But that's not to say that God gave up on his people. During the time of the kings, there were other leaders, better leaders, who rose up. Andrew, who was it? Say it. Say the same answer as before. The prophets. It was during the time of the kings, the kings, terrible leaders. They were shepherds who led their sheep way astray of of faith in, in God. But at the same time, God raised up another kind of leader. The prophets. Not the false shepherds who sat on the throne, but the truth-telling prophets who warned of coming judgment. To be a prophet was again to be in exile among your own people. Some held lofty government positions and were trusted by their kings, but most were hated and scorned and abused for their God-given messages of reform and repentance. It was these faithful exiles who were proven right in the end, as the Assyrians led the disobedient northern kingdom of Israel into exile around 720 B.C., and the Babylonians led the remaining tribes of Judah and Benjamin into their exile in 586 B.C. For Israel and Judah, their destiny was destruction, their gods were their self-serving appetites, and all their political and military glory just led to the ultimate shame of exile. Destiny, gods, and glory. Ripped from their homes, ripped from their identities, abandoned and forgotten by their God, a consequence of their repeated unwillingness to submit to his authority, except no, they were not abandoned and forgotten by their God. God gave them all kinds of promises for renewal and restoration but not the kind of renewal and restoration they hoped for. I didn't say that God gave them promises for a return to military strength or political prestige. He didn't give them their promised land back. They were still subject to the worldly empires who ruled over them. After Babylon came the Persians and the Greeks, and then during the time of Jesus, the Romans. So they didn't give them their status back, their eliteness back. They were still subject to the empires. Sure, there were those who thought their role as exiles was to organize a revolution and overthrow the Babylonians or the Romans or the Greeks or whoever. They thought that their role as faithful followers was to take up arms against the empire. There were others who thought their role as exiles was to forfeit their religious and moral identities and submit to the pagan lives of their occupying neighbors, give up their Jewishness, and just blend in to save their lives. They thought there were only two choices. Reform through violence or conform through identity abandonment. Become just like the rest of the world around them. Sounds a lot like um, the choices facing our church today, doesn't it? Take up arms against the world or just give up and become just like the world in every way. Those were their only two choices, right? Fight back against the empire or submit to it fully. Well, actually, no. Neither of those options were big among the ones who spoke for God during this time, the prophets. Take Daniel, for instance. Daniel's a perfect example. Did Daniel, who was a Jew, forced into exile and given through his wisdom and courage of his convictions a place of high honor in Babylon? Did Daniel, from his place of power and privilege among the king's wise men, honor God through violent reformation? Did he plunge a knife into Nebuchadnezzar's back? Did he slit the throat of King Darius while he slept? Or on the other hand, did Daniel, when confronted with food choices that betrayed his moral identity, when confronted with a command to submit to idolatry or be thrown into the lion's den, 
Did Daniel simply conform to the corrupt pattern of the empire around him? Did he just give in? No. He neither rose up against his occupiers, nor did he submit and become just like his occupiers. He didn't violently reform the empire, and he didn't conform to the empire. There was a third way. Not reformation, not confirmation, but transformation. A better way, a third way. Within the filthy belly of the beast, Daniel refused to fight against those in power, and he refused to cave to those in power. Instead, with obedience, with creativity, with strength, Daniel subverted the empire. I love that word, because that's who we are. We are subverters of the empire. Despite being in exile, he held firm to his godly convictions, and he was justified every time. As Junior Asparagus sings in Veggie Tales, God's way is the best way if we will follow him. It was not political might, nor violent dissent, nor abandonment of principles that made an impact on the empire. Again, it wasn't Daniel in his strength, his military strength. It wasn't Daniel in his willingness to forfeit everything he believed in. None of those things made an impact on the empire. Daniel didn't use his power to coerce others into truth. Rather, it was Daniel's courage and wisdom that influenced the people around him to take his living God more seriously. And in doing so, he transformed his entire empire. Another prophetic example is Jeremiah. The most famous passage in Jeremiah is 29.11. It's also one of the most widely um, misused portions of scripture out of context, kind of. But the most famous passage is Jeremiah 29.11, which says, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. You've heard that verse, right? You've probably seen it on Bible covers or or mugs like this. It's pretty famous and, and pretty well-known Old Testament scripture. Churches take that wildly out of context when deciding to fundraise for new carpets. I know the plans you have for us to have better carpets. That It gets taken wildly out of context. In chapter 29, Jeremiah is writing to the exiled Israelites who have experienced everything I put you through when Barhead took over Clyde. Everything that was true in that hypothetical scenario was exactly what was happening to the people of God in that time. And again, Jeremiah's message isn't, rise up against Babylon. His message isn't, submit yourselves fully to the whims of the emperor. Instead, Jeremiah's message in chapter 29 is this. You can turn to chapter 29 and read it for yourself, especially starting, I think it's verse 5, might be verse 8. This is Jeremiah's message to the exiles of Israel who are in Babylon. He says, In your places of exile, make homes for yourself. Plant gardens. Marry and have kids. Seek the peace and prosperity of the cities you've been exiled to. That's a bit of a subversive message that he says. Because the Israelites, they want to rise up. Either that, or they want to abandon everything and just cave to the empire. But Jeremiah says, no, there's a third way. Plant yourselves in the empire you're living in. Live lives with, not like the Babylonians, but live lives with them. In other words, God says, though you long for something greater and more glorious, though your destiny is somewhere beyond this land and this world, Though your God may seem to have abandoned you, though your promised home is taken from you, trust me, he says. Trust me. I know my plans for you. That's what God, that's what 2911 is saying. You're surrounded by the evilness of the world around you, but trust me. 
live, build roots, live your lives in this empire. That's not what you hear a lot. We say flee from the world. Jeremiah says, no, live your lives in this world. Why? Because trust him. He has plans for you. If you set down roots in Babylon, you will not be harmed. If you care for your neighbors, though they are your oppressors, you will secure a beautiful future for yourselves. It's risky, God says. I know it's risky. But do not pick up swords against the empire. Instead, pick up a rake and plant your cucumbers. Do not turn yourself into Babylonians, but don't turn away from the Babylonians either. Do not refuse to show kindness or hospitality or forgiveness to them. Do not live in open rebellion to them or to me, but honor me by living at peace with your ungodly neighbors. Shine my light in that dark empire, and when the time comes for you to return home, you will have left an impression on the empire around you. Trust me, God says. Trust me. I know the plans I have for you. You do not belong to Babylon, but here you are. You're there. You're in Babylon, even though you don't don't belong there. So live well while you are there. Don't use violence or anger or political power to reform. Don't let the vast corruption of the empire lead you to conform. Instead, live peacefully, subvert its ugliness. That's how exiles transform. A third way. Not reform with violence, not conform by laying down everything that's true about your identity in God, but instead transform by living godly lives among your enemies, among the evil empire around you. So those are the stories of exile in the Old Testament, and it only continues in the New. I promise this won't, I'm almost done. Won't be as long. But the, the story of exiles continues in the New Testament as well. Real quick, you think Jesus didn't live an exiled life? Jesus absolutely lived the life of an exile. Like Joseph, jo- Jesus lived as an exile in Egypt. He had to flee from Herod. He lived just the, the beginning of his life as an exile in Egypt, just like Joseph. Like Moses, Jesus didn't save his people from the palace, but had to experience humble exile from glory and become the good shepherd in order to deliver humanity. That's what Philippians 2 says. He deserves glory. He started in glory, but he he gave it up. He gave up his rights. He gave up the palace to come down and be a lowly shepherd, just like Moses. And that's how he delivered his people. Like the prophets, Jesus was exiled and despised for telling difficult truths, truths that made people uncomfortable. And like the prophets, many of the prophets, it got him killed. Like Daniel, Jesus' courageous convictions, his creative wisdom, and his commanding compassion turned the world's power structure upside down, turned the world on its head. And like Jeremiah, Jesus showed how exiles are to live peacefully and lovingly among your faithless neighbors in order to bring those faithless neighbors to faith, in order to bring glory to God. Jesus had no money. He dismissively tossed coins back to Caesar because they were stamped with Caesar's image. He didn't care about money. Jesus had no home to speak of. The foxes have dens, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was rejected in his hometown. He was rejected by those in authority. He was rejected by his own followers at the first whiff of persecution. He was mocked and scorned and shamed and destroyed by the ones he came to save. And he faced it all silently until it was time to forgive. Then he had words to say, Father, forgive them. Jesus' time on this earth was a portrait of holy exile. He was a homeless pilgrim seeking and saving others who knew they too were homeless pilgrims. 
Like all exiles, Jesus had no earthly power, no earthly privilege, no earthly prestige. But what he lacked in earthly power, he more than made up for with heavenly power, true power. And that true power is what brought our exiled king back to glory. I could go on and on about Paul's life of exile, the early church's life of exile, the persecuted church. I could go on about the monks who preserved true Christianity after the empire perverted it by making it the state religion of Rome. I could go on and on with tales of exiles who were faithful servants, exiles who were the true servants of of the kingdom. The story of exile is a big one, so big that it continues today. It continues with you. You are exiles as well. But I want to finish this morning by returning to Philippians 3. Those who are enemies of the cross are those whose minds are set on earthly things. Their destiny is destruction. Their gods are their stomachs. And their glory is in their shame. So they can have all their power. They can have all their profits. And I mean profits like financial gain. They can have all their prestige and all their prominence and all their pursuits and all their possessions. They can have all of it. None of those things mean anything once death comes to visit. I hope, here's where last week I was filled with righteous anger and and glee. What I really hope is that as many as possible see the shallowness of our empire's empty consumption and the shallowness of its obsession with self I hope that our third way of subverting the empire by transforming it with courageous acts of compassion, wisdom, and love, I hope that leads our neighbors to faith as we peacefully coexist among them. I don't want them to be destroyed. I don't want them to worship their stomachs and and lead to shame and destruction. That's not what I want for anyone, any of our neighbors. So I hope that our way of subverting the empire, our third way of being respectful to the empire around us, but not selling ourselves to the empire, I hope that convinces them that the third way is a more beautiful and more perfect way. But make no mistake, this world is not our home. Like the stories of old, we are exiles anticipating a return home. Our destiny is not destruction. Our destiny is deliverance. Our God isn't our stomachs. Our God is our Savior, Jesus. And our glory, our glory is not our shame. Our glory was won by His shame. And so our glory is our hope. It's our future. One day he will bring everything under his control and fully and completely transform us into new creatures. On that day, he will return us to the paradise of his presence, like the garden. One day we will see the promised land. He knows the plans that he's made for us and he calls us to trust those plans. One day we will no longer be exiles. We've always been exiles because we are not citizens of any empire. Rather, we are faithful citizens of a glorious kingdom. We're not beholden to any empire. We are slaves to a great and glorious kingdom. We may be waiting in exile, but we know that one day our king will call us to himself. Then we will no longer be exiles. We will be home. That is our destiny. That is our glory. Home. No longer sojourners and pilgrims, he will call us home. What does he say in, I don't know if it's John 14. You know where I'm going and where I'm going, I've prepared a place for you. You have a home in my presence. Remain in me and you will have a home. The good news is you can have that home now. We have that home already. We already have found a place where we belong. 
It's not just this building. That's with each other. That's our community of faith. We have a home now. We have a destiny that we can strive for now. We have a God who we can love and live for now. But there's something better coming. We will no longer be exiles. We'll be home. All the story of all the scripture from Genesis right through to Revelation points to exiles being brought home. It's a beautiful story, and it's our story. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for these stories of scripture and how they point us back to you, how they point us back home. Father, we know that it's hard to escape the the idols of this world, consumption, individualism, materialism. We know that they're hard to escape, but we also know that you escape them, that you deliver us from them. So help us to not raise up arms against the empire we live in. Help us to not just cave and submit ourselves fully to every whim of the empire. Jesus, lead us in a third way. Holy Spirit, lead us in a third way that subverts the empire by showing how dark it is, by demonstrating how light you are, how beautiful you are and good. Help us to live lives that draw people out of the destruction, out of the shame of this empire. Help us to live lives that that lead to deliverance and freedom and home. We thank you that we have a home in you, Jesus. We pray all these things in your powerful name. Amen. Exiles among the occupying Varhedians. That's just some light hypocrisy that I need to apologize for. Then we will no longer be exiles. We'll be home. <laughs>